Hello and welcome to the Virtual Clinical Podcast. I'm your host, Nicole Sunderland, and together, alongside my nursing students, I bring together my friends and colleagues in an effort to answer the questions, provide mentorship, and oftentimes help other professional nurses along the way. Hope you enjoy these episodes. virtual clinical podcast. I am joined today with my puppy right here and my friend and colleague Lauren Landis. She joins us from a surgical anesthesia ICU experience but has lots of experience before that um, primarily as my uh, previous co-worker in the neuroscience ICU. Lauren is a 2016 graduate of Penn State Mont Alto, correct? Yeah. Um, and so Lauren, we're going to talk about what made you decide to do nursing? That's a good question. So I would say I was not one of those girls who grew up saying, oh, I want to be a nurse from the time I was young. Um, Actually, when I was in high school, what I wanted to do was be an interpreter. Um, Quite a few people, like our coworkers know, uh, I'm proficient in German. um, And and I was interested in maybe doing something like that. But I was a little bit too much of a homebody to want to move to like a big city where there might be a need for that. So, um, and I liked science, so I figured, oh, I'll try nursing. I'll see if it sticks, and luckily it did, but unfortunately, I don't have a more inspirational story than that. I think it's, I think it's still inspirational. I don't, I don't think there's, like, I think there's, like, a small percentage of people that are, like, I went into this because I want to be inspirational. I was inspired by A, B, and C, and, like, the other 95% of nurses that become nurses are kind of, like, I did it because it seemed cool. You know, it seemed like a good a good idea. And by the way, I wanted to help people. I mean, I feel like that's the underlying theme, right? So you were interested in in interpreting high proficiency in German language. I remember meeting you and you're like, yeah, I speak German. And I'm like, what? How that? I can't, I mean, I know like a few words in German, but I'm like, okay, like maybe we'll get some German patients, help them out through their, through their times. But yeah, I think it's, I, I don't think there's anything wrong with not being inspirational or inspired to be a nurse. <laughs> you really were by, by interpreting someone's language. Just so happened that it was German, and only big cities usually use German, except for Carlisle, which exists around here, which has a large German population. So I like Worcester County a little bit. Oh yeah, that too. Yeah. And the the Dutch German in there. Uh, what was it like going to uh, Mont Alto versus probably a, a larger college? What was that smaller college like? Uh-huh. <laughs> So I did, I actually got my associate's degree through there. So I did a year at Penn State Harrisburg and then I um, transferred there because I was under the impression, it's a really long story, but I was under the impression that there was a nursing program at Penn State Harrisburg. But um, anybody around here knows that it's actually just a second degree RN kind of track. Um, So I transferred because that was the closest Penn State campus and Mm -hmm. I was already accepted to Penn State and I will say that uh, being being from the Harrisburg Hershey area, I never I never really thought that here is a very happening place to be. But then you move somewhere like Mon Alto, Pennsylvania, and let me tell you, I can remember asking this girl who was from the area. I was like, "Hey, um, where's a good place to go out to eat around here? I really love food, and like I want to find a good place to eat. Where would you recommend?" She's like, "Oh." You've got to try this place called Frank's Taste of Italy. It's the best Italian food you're ever going to have. 
And I was like, oh, cool, where is it? She's, she's like, it's actually in the town square. And I'm like, oh, that's great. I can walk there from campus. I go there and it's a pizzeria, <laughs> which oh. it was very good. It was delicious. I, I loved eating there, but it wasn't, I'm, I'm imagining like, you know, like someone's, someone's Italian grandma, like hand baking me some delicious yeah. pasta. <laughs> it was, it was a pizzeria, but I did love it. Nope, none of those. <laughs> where, where is Monalto? Is that west of here? It or? is west of here. It's really close to Chambersburg and okay. the Maryland border. Yeah. Oh, that's like middle of nowhere, almost. Yeah. I mean, like, not like middle of nowhere, but like, if, in my opinion, like anything south of Chambersburg is really, really far away. Not much big cities near there. The nearest mm -hmm. biggest city is Chambersburg. Yep. And then after that is probably Hagerstown. Hagerstown. Yeah. Um, and those are tinier towns for those listening that have no clue what we're talking about. Um, in, in comparison to cities like Harrisburg, um, which is like your, your probably like your mid-level city, and then Philadelphia, Pittsburgh are your large cities within Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Well, that's neat. Uh, yeah, I, I, I too have had never known that Penn State Harrisburg was not a baccalaureate prepared um, program, nursing program, without being second degree. I thought it, I thought they had both at first, mm -hmm. and then I don't remember when I got involved with teaching clinicals, like, like, like the first, like, knowledge of it, not that I didn't know about it, right, but, like, part of all these programs that taught nurses, let's say, and then someone mentioned Penn State Harrisburg, and I said, oh, that's cool, like, that's a pretty neat, pretty neat campus, all that stuff, but then they were, like, oh, it's only, it's only secondary only, and I was, like, oh, that's really, really interesting, because usually they have, programs have both additional BSNs and secondary programs, just because of faculty, but I guess they specialize in that, and they, they do a really good job. I know a couple people that have gone there and have done really well as nurses. Many of our colleagues, I think, did that program. Yeah, yeah. Um, really, really good program, and really close to a lot of hospitals, which makes clinicals easier. So, so were clinicals far away then in Montalto? So there were a few. So let me think. My very first clinical was at Carlisle Regional, uh -huh. and that was about a 40, 45-ish minute drive. Um, all the rest of them were fairly local. We did them at Chambersburg Hospital, of course, Waynesboro, um, and Gettysburg Hospital. So um, Waynesboro was the closest, then Chambersburg was like maybe 20 minutes away. Gettysburg was um, almost equal distance as uh, Carlisle Regional. And then for Peds, we actually did go to Hershey for Peds. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah. That was quite an experience, I'm sure, because there's not many... Pete's hospitals in Pennsylvania either. Yep. So, so that's nice. So then where did you go? Oh no, that, no, no, no. We just talked about that. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm like kind of like spacing out here. <laughs> okay. So after that, what was your experience like with your first job? We don't say where, where you worked at all. Um, there, there's no burning bridges here on this podcast, but what, what was that experience <laughs> like? Like what kind of unit was it? Mm -hmm. All that good stuff. So I worked on a neuro focused med surge floor so it was primarily stroke patients um and then like med surge overflow so i'd say 90 nah maybe not 90 like 80 percent of our patients were stroke patients who um were out of the window for tpa or were downgraded from icu um and i i say that it was considered a med surge unit but i will say that at this hospital they didn't have um the best staffing ratios and everybody was on monitor, insulin drips, heparin drips. So it, it was definitely much heavier than maybe the, the more med surge experience that we're used to where we work. 
Yeah. Um, my nurse to patient ratio at that hospital, best case scenario was five or six on night shift and worst case scenario was in charge with nine. That's in charge with additional nine patients. My, my worst, my worst shift ever, oh my, goodness. Where, my worst shift ever where nobody died. Thank well, God. Was in charge nine patients and precepting a GN that was close to coming off orientation. That's, and I had that, that's wild. And own. for anyone that, that does not know what safe nursing ratios are, ratios exist to make one nurse take care of X number of patients. And that is a huge debated topic. Um, primarily in hospitals, but also in long-term care facilities such as nursing homes and even other kind of care facilities as well that are not nursing homes, that somebody seems to think that we're going to base your work on taking care of six patients at a time, and that's how we're going to staff the unit because we only have X amount of dollars to spend on staffing the unit. And there's a lot of safety components that go into that. It is very unsafe, in my opinion, to have IMC level patients. And, it's, and in some hospitals, IMC level doesn't necessarily exist. It's like ICU and then step down, that's it. Um, and so what that means is you're either really, really sick in critical care, or you are stepped down from that and you're kind of like in, in the mix with a lot of like different level of care patients. And so sometimes those units don't have a big grasp on what I call acuity and how sick somebody is. In other hospitals, acuity is determined differently, so we're not going to get into that so much. But for the sake of this particular conversation, I worked at a hospital, and my nurse-to-patient ratio was like one to six, one to seven, and that was IMC patients. And, and the way that some hospitals would staff uh, nurses and match the patient condition was, you know, let's do like three stroke patients, two neurosurgery patients, and like a trauma patient right? And you don't know where you're getting thrown into because you don't know how sick those people actually are. And that could throw you into a really, really dangerous situation. So to hear somebody have nine patients on night shift with a orientee who's trying to learn how to be a, how to be a nurse and try to learn their best nursing knowledge possible, that's just, that's just insane. Like that's just so unsafe and just crazy to me. So yeah. Yeah, um, it was tough, and that, honestly, it, it wasn't that I hated med surge or the, the lower acuity work, it wasn't about that, it just was like, you know, when you, when you start your shift and you don't even know who's a full code or who's a DNR, that's really scary. It is really scary. Uh, my, my second day off orientation at that job, tucked this person into bed, he said, Oh, throw throw that fl fluffy blanket my wife got me over me because she'll be really upset in the morning if I'm not wearing it. And I'm like, huh, okay. And I tuck this guy in, leave. Ten minutes later, he went into V-fib. Wow. I was two days off my orientation. I didn't know if he was a full coat or anything. And they're right. like, and I just was like beside myself. And I just felt like ever since that, I was like, I don't know what I got myself into. So it was a good experience in the sense that I, to take care of that many patients, your time management must be on point and yeah. you, yeah. you need to have a clear plan in your head. And I feel like, you know, you get, you get a little bit more lax in that and you get more experience and you, you 
kind of reprioritize what are priorities to you in your nursing care and you you grow from that but I think that really kind of helped me to be an organized nurse and it wasn't always necessarily for the better and it wasn't always easy but um it that was an important experience having that job so even though it's not where I am today and it's not the type of nursing that I like to do anymore I'm still thankful that I had some of the experiences that I did there I definitely grew from that yeah I mean I I think what else can you take from that besides what you learn from it a what you don't do as a nurse right now now that you know the opposite of things as at a different place what what don't you want to do and what learning curves and what things can you gain from it in in like a, a more positive way that could be taken for the future and like you're like oh well I didn't do it this way at my old job but maybe this way is safer at this new job or you know wherever you work I I I agree I I think med surge is such an underrated specialty that that people can be so so good at and I often make this argument that yes critical care patients are are very sick I've seen a lot of really super sick patients however when you get into med surge acute care and you get some really super like on the wall patients which happens a lot um, they can go either way they can be re-upgraded in in a moment's notice they can be have something that originally happened to them that something new has happened to them and all of a sudden like this like catastrophe happens and then you also learn like a lot of really nice skills at med surge that exist with like dressing changes and you know how to really care for somebody and wash their hair or something so simple you know but mm-hmm. so I, I think there's like really good things but but if your but if your ratios are like nine to one how can you provide that that care to them no, you know? that that is throw throw the meds in their mouth and run to the next person yes. put out the next fire <laughs> then it's noon and all of a sudden you gotta do it all over again and it's just med throwing time <laughs> you're not mm-hmm. even gonna get this care day goodness <laughs> oh lord so so was that the fib uh, patient that you discussed was that your first patient death no experience? okay because I because like I had my first one when I was an extern and that was just like a, a shock to the core almost because like you don't really know like how to handle this stuff you're like how do I how do I handle this so I mm-hmm. I wasn't sure like if that kind of like threw you into a loop so for some students they've never experienced that with their with their clinicals or they don't really understand what it's like to take care of somebody and have them like pass away on their shift or within their moment and so that can be really tricky for them to really get get to know how to how to handle the emotions and things like that and also how to like move on from that so so when did you move on from from that position I was there um I think just under a year and a half so it was like mm, I think it was like September of 2017 okay that I that I made the switch from that uh unit and that institution to um the neuro icu where we worked um and that was i was really afraid to make that jump uh partly because you know you have you have people that tell you like oh well you're not gonna hack it there or you you're you're not gonna do well or whatever but you know people just kind of have to figure that out for themselves if, if they will or won't or if they like it or won't like it and you know i I really have decided that I love critical care and I've never looked back and I've never, never regretted making that jump. That's awesome. I, I think, I think, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people that probably are quote unquote haters, right? That see you moving yeah. on and they're like, well, she's never going to hack it because I know her in this particular role. 
but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're not able to handle another particular role. It just, it just depends on if the person is willing to dive full force into something that's brand new, mm-hmm. be able to know themselves, and then also be able to kind of confront their challenges and, and, and grow from that. And I think that's what nursing is all about, especially critical care nursing. And, you know, not necessarily give up when, when, it, when, it, gets, when it gets tough because it does get tough. But learning how to lean on other people, I think, is a, is a really unique thing about nursing. And you work night shift, so there's a lot of leaning on others to help get the job done. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. You, you did everything from staff nursing to charge nursing. Were you a counsel? No. I would always I, sign I, up, I and know. then the position would get filled. And I was like, darn, but I didn't <laughs> want to. <laughs> council right. is very popular for those that don't work with us or know like everybody wants to be on council shared share governance is lit like shared yeah. governance is the thing to be on because you you feel like you make changes happen um and not, you don't only feel that but, but you actually do make changes happen if you if you were to pay attention to any hospital shared governance program mm-hmm. it's a it's a crazy thing and there still is like this hot debate on like who who's going to join council when like, we still vote for people and stuff so it's mm-hmm. it's pretty awesome that's cool. So how, so you, you worked there for what, like, I think like two, two years. My, my timing is so off. Yeah. So forgive me if I forget how long you've worked in a particular unit. Like, <laughs> I, I still know, like there's so many coworkers and they're like, yeah, I worked here for like seven years. And I'm like, huh? <laughs> you, just, you just started here. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, I was there for, um, yeah, two and a half years about. Um, and I, I never would have left that job, but, uh, and what we're, I think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about today is kind of why I left. Um, so in March of 2019, not, not everyone listening this is not a blaming session. This is Lauren coming oh, no, no, no. talking about mm. a really important topic that is near and dear to my heart because I have experienced things like this, but not necessarily as close as Lauren has. So I, I do want to preface that with, this is not like, you know, Oh, we're gonna talk about why you left. Da, 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 da. This is no, 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 no. A positive thing, and I and, and I commend Lauren for for coming forward for this reason to help teach students and also fellow colleagues. So I'm sorry. Oh, right. yeah. No. Good, good disclaimer. Good disclaimer. Yeah. Good disclaimer. <laughs> so yeah. So in March of 2019, uh, my father had a stroke and was treated at our hospital and actually ended up passing away on our unit. So. Mm. Um, that, that was a pretty, pretty tough experience. And I actually stuck it out for, um, what was it? I left in February. So almost, almost a full year after he passed away. I I did stay. Yeah. Wow. Um, But I decided that maybe I needed to distance myself from that because it was kind of like, deal at stroke kind of at home in a way, deal at stroke at work, stroke, stroke, stroke. So I yeah. kind of just wanted a fresh start in a sense. But um, I do, I have a, the the biggest soft spot in my heart for neuro patients. And where I work now, we get a lot of trauma. So anytime there's a head trauma, I'm like, I'll take that. I know how to work a Codman. <laughs> I know how to prime an EVD. I'm your girl. So <laughs> I still get, I still get tastes of that. Um, and that's really nice. But yeah, so wow. Unfortunately, That's a heavy, heavy things. So what kind of stroke did your dad have? He had a left MCA. Okay. And he was 
right hand dominant. So okay. he, his deficits were pretty profound. Um, I guess, should I just start at the beginning of all what this? Is, or? Yeah, I mean, like, whatever. I, I, mean, I, I was going to help describe what a stroke is for people that don't know, and we'll kind of like go into that. But yeah, like, wherever you, wherever you want to start. So yeah, we'll we'll start at the beginning and and we'll we'll talk about the type of stroke and and how it all played out. I think that would be good. So um, it was a Sunday, and I had worked Saturday night. So Sunday during the day I was sleeping, and I remember I distinctly remember um, I had only gotten like four hours of sleep before I went into work, and then I worked twelve, and I was like, I'm turning my phone off. It's going on mute, and I'm sleeping until I wake up. Right. And a lot of sleep happens for those working night shifts, just so you know. It's not yeah. uncommon. It wasn't uncommon, I think, for Lorna to come in and be like, I only got four hours of sleep or six hours and, of sleep just because of the life, you know? Well, and I got to say, it's usually, for me, it was usually self-inflicted because I would, like, go hang out at Funks after work until, like, <laughs> noon and then come back to work. Like, so... <laughs> Don't be scared. Your life doesn't have to be like that. If you go into night shift, you can't be a little more regimented than me. But and just say, I'm going to bed. I don't like anybody else. I don't care about yeah. anybody sleeping. It's Nicole way different than sleeping. Night night shift, trailer shift. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so who knows? I, I probably was like eating breakfast with my friends at Funks until noon and then went back into work and was dead tired. I'm going to bed and I'm waking up when I wake up, whether that's 10 p.m. tonight on my night off or whatever it might be. Um, and for me to put my phone on mute um, is not normal for me. I usually at least have it on vibrate because I, in the back of my head, I have this thought like, oh, what if like my family needs me or something comes right. up? So it's right. very unusual that I would even like not have my phone ready to go. Um, and I can remember about probably about 3 p.m. that day, um, my boyfriend, now fiance, he woke me up and he was like, hey, I'm going to go visit my mom. And I was like, oh, okay, see ya. And then what felt like I closed my eyes and then was like woken back up again. Um, he came in, he like shook me awake and was like, we have to go to the hospital. And I asked why. And he said, your dad had a stroke. Your mom called me. So then we just like left. Wow. So I showed up and I, I only lived like 10 minutes from the hospital at the time. So and we I'm got there. At this point as well, you were like so just like what what's going on? Like so just dazed. Oh yeah. So in my head, I'm imagining and so I guess I should before I go any further, I should say my dad was a, a heavy cigar smoker, smoked I don't know how many cigars a day. Um, was was not completely sedentary, but uh, was probably probably didn't like exercise or take care of himself the best. Definitely ate whatever he wanted. He was so like um, eating potatoes and have a beer with my dinner type of guy. Yeah. Um. So you know he he just that alone, not even touching like disease process kind of stuff. He had pretty much all all the uh, all the risk factors, all the risk factors that are controllable. Yeah, so. and, and all of the central PA risk factors. You know, because when we just when we talk about on our unit central PA diet, that is literally meat, potatoes, beer, and kind of the sedentary lifestyle. You kind of go on, you know, you kind of do some things every once in a while, uh, but definitely you just kind of just that's 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 what it is, um, which is which is not unique to to Lauren's dad, but definitely unique to this area. Yeah. 
So that right there, I'm thinking like, oh, he probably had a hypertensive bleed that like, I don't know why that was the first thing that I thought, because um, yeah. I always had so many conversations with him like, yeah, I know you like to fish and hike sometimes, but you don't really like, you know, do like you don't get out and like go on runs or anything like that or do things that would really like keep you cardiovascularly healthy. So I always thought that he would have high blood pressure um, and we'll, we'll get into what, what the workup actually found. But sure. um, that's, that was what I pictured when Josh was like, your dad has stroke. I'm like, Oh my God, he's intubated. He had a big bleed. And I, I was terrified that that's what I was going to see. Um, finally did like get on the phone with my mom and she said that they were out on a hike in um, Fort Indian town gap, like around that area. Mm -hmm. um, and they were in the woods on a trail and he took his glasses off or something and was like looking at them and doing, she's like, what are you doing? And she, he looked up at my mom and started like talking very garbled like, and mm. she was like, come on, Frank, stop it. What, you know, what are you stop joking with me? And then he tried to get out like, no, I'm okay. But it was like, she knew what he was trying to say at that point, but it was so messed up. And she was luckily knew fast FAST and knew that he yes. was having a stroke and called 911 and they actually like lost service and like got disconnected from 911. They called her back. My brother who knew better what trail they would be on, they, or uh, the dispatchers called him to explain where the heck they might be. That's so important. Yeah. And they actually, I think because they were in such close proximity to Fort Indian Town Gap, which has an army base, I think they helped them like get an ATV out into the woods and actually like got them out of the woods before they could even get an ambulance. Wow. Yeah. That's insane. Um, they were so lucky yeah. to even have that. Yeah. Oh yeah. And so he made it, he made it to the hospital and my mom, like, I just think she did so great. And I'm sure I can't even imagine how stressful that must've been for her, but she yeah. had the wits about her to request that he be taken to a hospital that would have the capabilities to do the interventions because they were going to send him to a facility that would have basically TPA'd him and sent him out and would have lost time. She had the, the wits about her, even through all that stress, to request that he go to someplace that would actually be able to intervene if needed. That's amazing. Good. So, good for her. Yeah, I, I just, I think she, she did such a good job. So he got to the hospital in plenty of time, like there, there's a certain window of time that we have to give drugs like TPA, which is pot buster. Mm -hmm. And we have certain windows of time to um, perform inter an intervention called a thrombectomy where they try and suck the clot out, um, try and mechanically remove that. So he was lucky, got there within plenty of time for both of those interventions. And by the time I got to the hospital, Every, everybody else in, in my immediate family was already there. I was kind of the last one to get there. And by the time I saw him, he really wasn't talking anymore. He, he was alert and aware, you know, could, would make eye contact and stuff, but he, you could tell he was getting so frustrated yeah. that he couldn't speak. Yeah. That's so frustrating. Yeah. He I've was seen it so many times, by the way, and like other patients and they're just like, I can't form the words. They want to form the words. It just, it's heartbreaking. It is. Um, and he, he still at that point was getting out some snap phrases. So things that like you're, you would be able to say basically reflexively, like, thank you. No problem. 
or if you're frustrated because you can't talk, things like F, you know? Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. that's like stuff that like. Sometimes those are the easiest conversations to say. It's just, yep. okay. Yeah. And so he, he still was doing a little bit of that. Um, and then the neurology resident came around and had given the update that he was going to go uh, to interventional radiology for a thrombectomy, at which point um, I think that's when it became like really real to me. And I, I, I felt like at that point, that was when I kind of was felt myself getting so stressed out that I was going to like cry or freak yeah. out or something. So yeah. um, you're, you're in this mode probably as a nurse thinking like, oh, I know what to do. Like, this is what's going to happen. And you're not really oh, reacting yeah. to it because it kind of isn't real yet it, that it's your dad. You know, and as, as a as a nurse, you're probably like, oh, yeah, and this is what's happening. We're going to keep you in for our next and all this stuff, and boom, we're going to be fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the first the first thing, I, so I, you know, my dad had a good sense of humor. And so, and and like I said before, years ago, like maybe the first six months of my career, I had a talk with him. I'm like, dad you have a lot of risk factors, you don't take care of yourself, and you're gonna like ruin your life with your lifestyle if you don't at least go and get like a little bit of blood work or something. So when I saw him, he kind of had this look on his face like, oh, I'm gonna get it now. So the first thing I said to him was, this isn't take your dad to work day. And then like, I kind of got him to chuckle. (laughs) And then I went into nurse mode, started doing my own neuro exam on him. And figured out real quick that he couldn't talk and then um you know he still he had maybe like one out of five strength in his in his right upper and right lower so he you know he was trying but you know couldn't really do much with that so um back back on track here uh when the resident showed up and said he's gonna go for a thrombectomy that was the point that you know I kind of was feeling distress um and I gave him, gave him a hug and said, I loved him. And guess what? You know, we're going to deal with whatever happens, but you, you got the medicine you needed and, and you're going for, um, an intervention that this is the best we can do. Mm-hmm. And I tried, I tried to remind my family of that, that, you know, the timing was perfect for him. He had all the resources that he needed. He made it to a hospital that's capable of this stuff. And, you know, whether this procedure works or not, that, at least we can be comfortable knowing that he he got everything that he could get as soon as he could and to not create that blame structure that so many families feel when they come in for things like stroke you know if i only would have done this you did it all you know you did it all absolutely um so at that point like i said i i knew that was when i was going to start getting upset so i said my little piece and excused myself and i actually went up to our waiting room with my badge, the first thing I thought when I was like, oh man, I gotta go to the hospital, I was like, I, I better bring that badge so I can get into the locked unit. <laughs> but, um, so I, I let myself into the neuro unit and um, they, you know, then everybody was like, what are you doing here? And I was like, my dad's the patient going into room 25 and they're like, oh my God. And yeah, crazy. And that's kind of, that was kind of the start of like the weirdness of like, this is, my friends are going to be taking care of him. And yeah. Even, even providers that I consider my friends are like, you know, the, the, I don't know. We're like all in it together. It was very yeah. strange. Yeah. That's a, it, mm-hmm. it's a strange thing, but it's so comforting to know that like your, your coworkers were there for you. You know what I mean? Oh, oh yeah. I, I was very, I had a sense of relief knowing that 
it didn't matter who got assigned to him. I knew I could fully trust whoever was he was going to be in the hands of because I had that much respect and trust in my coworkers. And knowing um, and having my own relationships with the doctors that we worked with, it was like, okay, you know, um, I, I just felt like knowing who was going to be performing that thrombectomy, I felt good about that. And that was, I think, so important. I think me being able to say to my family, you know, this interventionalist, he's great. That, that kind of gave them a sense of ease too, which of course is unique to the situation. And how many times in your life are you going to be able to like say that? But yeah, I mean, um, I, I think in my life, I recommended people w within our hospital to a family member of mine, but it was, it was, it was such for such like a random thing that, I, that it wasn't even like, it didn't even bother me like how lucky I was to be able to offer that. And then the only other thing that I've ever offered was perhaps like looking at other positions and people in other organizations to help somebody GI out and stuff like that. Yeah. What's up? I said, usually like everybody's looking for a GI doctor. They want to know who you, what, who you think of for that. I'm like, I don't know. I don't even a good GI doctor that my stomach is <laughs> I don't know what's wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Um, so his procedure. Oh, and then so there was a lot of education. Yeah. For my family. And so you and you know, you know, as well as me, those thrombectomies, they can take seven minutes or they can take seven hours. Like, That's correct. yeah, really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it's really interesting to to really see a thrombectomy in in what like like your nursing care. So if you're a nurse and your patient needs to go get a thrombectomy because they've had a stroke. So for this particular person that we're talking about, they had a large vessel occlusion that controls a majority of one side of the brain. And it's a vessel that exists like kind of like in the middle of the head, which is why we call it a middle cerebral artery. And there's a drug called TPA, which is a tissue um, Tissue drug that the name is escaping me for a reason. I'm I'm in my like minogen activase. There we go. It it was it was always in my tongue. Maybe I'm having a stroke myself. But um, anywho, it works within a four-hour window if you give it correctly and on time. It can burst the clot and and dissolve it. Then if 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 the patient is still at risk for reoccluding or maybe like there's still a part of that clot still up there or their symptoms get worse, then we consult special doctors that go down to this procedure suite. Mm -hmm. That poke a groin, sorry, that's my computer, um, that poke a groin and put a catheter from your groin all the way up to your brain to try to mechanically grab a clot and, and remove it. And sometimes people are very successful at that and other times it just doesn't, it just doesn't work or sometimes it kind of works a little bit. And it's always this fine line that exists between working all the time and not really working at all and, it, and just like Lauren said, it can take anywhere from, you know, at best an hour, I think, by the time you get per, the, the patient onto the IR table and they, and they clean them off and they get everything ready, poking the groins and maybe getting that clot out to all the way from like four hours plus. You know, I think, I, I don't remember what the longest time I've ever sat down there was, but it was a, it was a pretty long time. Like six, I think I sat down there for six hours one time. Yeah, that's, yeah. and that's probably, probably correct from what I sat down there for as well. Maybe eight hours. I don't know. It, it can take a while. So, so for those things, this was just some, some kind of simple procedure, like, oh, we're just going to go grab a clot. It's not necessarily that simple, mm -hmm. and it's very, very tricky, and sometimes 
there is that, that case where a, a neurosurgeon can push that clot further up the vessel than they want to. So there's a lot of, a lot of technique and skill that's really underappreciated and really, you know, for, for, for the nursing student and for the new nurse to understand exactly what, what goes on. Mm -hmm. So um, for my dad's um, thrombectomy procedure, he went on the table probably around 8 p.m., and he came out, I think, around 10.30. So that was like, you know, middle of the road for um, length of procedure. Um, and he, so there's also a, a grading scale for the, how successful this procedure is. So yes. it's the, it's the Tiki grading scale. So a Tiki zero means that it, the procedure was completely unsuccessful. And a Tiki three is completely successful. Yeah, all the clocks. So um, it's one, one through, or I'm sorry, zero through three. And then if a Tiki two is broken up into a A and a B, um, and my dad was a Tiki two B. So that's the second best outcome you can have with that. And he, he had about between 75 and 80% of the clot removed, which is really good. Wow. However, what stayed behind um, and whether, whether it was related to the TPA, breaking some of the clot down and it moving a little bit, or mechanically um, going in and trying to take that out, if just like taking pieces at a time, he had, they did five passes. Oh, wow. That's a lot of passes. Yeah, it is. Um, so yeah. they did five. So it's, it's hard to say um, how, how and the, the mechanism of that happening, but um, what was left behind went to the M2 branch of his um, left main cerebral artery. So that is um, a, a fairly important branch um, in that system. Yeah. So, so that, you know, he, well, I should say during, when I was sitting in the waiting room, it kind of, you know, I kind of calmed myself down. And I was like, you know what, like, he's probably gonna, like, they're probably gonna get it mostly out. Maybe he'll have some deficits and this, you know, he, he'll learn now. He'll, He'll learn about his smoking habits and, yeah. you know, his maybe um, carbohydrate and lipid intake. You know, he's going to learn about that now. Yeah. He's a really hard lesson. way, you know. Mm -hmm. So that, that was kind of what I was expecting or, you know, waiting to see. And when he came out of the procedure, he didn't talk at all anymore. Like he, he yeah. So he yeah. had a worse exam. Um, and he wasn't, Which can you know, happen, unfortunately, yeah, yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, that, that's just one of those things when your deficits are that bad, um, you know, we use the NIH stroke scale to grade strokes and you want a stroke score of a zero. That means you have no deficits, but if your score, if so many things are wrong with your neurologic exam that you're getting, you know, a 20 or a 25 on your NIH, that means you have you know, that many things going on that are um, going to affect your life and your functionality. So, you know, if, if you were as aphasic as him and uh, as unable to speak, and he was kind of global too, like he, I would say maybe not so much um, when I saw him in the ED, but after that, he was absolutely like completely global. I remember um, when he got out of IR, I was like, dad, show me your thumb. And he just kind of like looked at me and then like, I know, like, for those listening that you're not going to see, but, like, he just kind of held his hand up and flipped it around and then, like, looked at me, and it, so you could tell he only understood, like, and, but not thumb. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, so that was like, oh dear, I don't, you know, this is, this is maybe not going to be so good. And, um, another thing is the, the younger, the younger a person is, the less their brain has atrophied and the less it has shrunken in time. So, um, which which can be, so when you, when you're older in age and older, meaning probably greater than 70 years old, um, Mm -hmm. some, for most people and it kind of develops this atrophy meaning that your that your tissue in the brain has kind of shrunken and so you have this extra space and when you have something like a stroke and I think what Lauren is is getting at and we kind of allow the brain to swell at a normal rate and allow that brain to swell because that's, what, that's what's going to happen because something's blocking it and the damage just happens so it needs to swell to, to kind of react kind of like a bruise happens on the arm and then eventually it, it the swelling goes down and then and then we assess the damage of what's happened in that brain. Mm-hmm. And so when you're when you're young, how how old what was your dad again? Forty seven. Yeah, but that's super young. Super young. Super young. Um there's not a lot of space in that brain to swell after any kind of damage has happened, whether that's an occlusive stroke, which is what Lawrence had had, or a bleeding stroke, which is what she thought Lawrence had would have had. Um those sorts of things can make that brain swell and there's not a whole lot of time or room for that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. So, so when he came back and I saw his exam was worse um, and that, that really um, scared my family. And I just kind of explained, you know, things, things are going to get a little worse before they get better with this kind of situation. And, you know, you see it pretty frequently the first like day or so the people, their exam is like, really not so hot and then they start making little strides forward if they're going to get better and um you know I, w- I was trying to stay positive for them that that's what we need to focus on is right now things aren't gonna look great but we need to wait and see what's going to happen in the coming days yeah um so when you when you get a drug like TPA or you have this um, thrombectomy procedure, you need to be monitored really frequently because the the TPA, the goal of it is to break down blood clots, but um, in doing that, it can also cause um, bleeding that you don't want. Right. So we, they, you know, the nurses work very hard to assess him frequently throughout the night and make sure that he wasn't getting any worse. And I kind of noticed like I said, he got out of his procedure probably around like 10:30 p.m. I noticed probably by like five in the morning he was not as interactive and not in the sense that he was fatigued, because he would fall asleep and then kind of wake back up to participate because the nurse was trying to get an exam out of him and he, you know, did whatever kind of exam he would have had at that point in time. But then I noticed he would like, um, kind of just like pay attention or like, you know, kind of like make that eye contact or whatever. And then just kind of like close his eyes and like, yeah. Yeah. And the the detail that you're talking about for everybody listening is exactly what we have to assess as neuroscience nurses. It's very much a people watching profession. Ooh, people watching. I love that description. Yeah. Because I love people watching. You just watch people all day long. You'll find so many unique things about them that you're Mm -hmm. like, you have this and when you get really good at people watching you literally can can guess like what what people have as their as their diagnosis or, or their even their like medical history so same thing with like with like 
cardiovascular damage. You know, you have those darkening lower extremities that don't seem to pump enough blood to them. That same thing happens in neuroscience and with, with stroke patients and with, with like patients that have MS and patients that have other diseases. And so what Lauren is describing is super, I would say like super advanced um, knowledge that you need after watching people for, for X amount of years in this field. You know, it's not, it's not easy to grasp. And us describing what an MCA stroke is and what she's talking about and, and the M2 segment, you know, that kind of branches off that MCA and, and how like this kind of progressed to a more, you know, alert to lethargic to abundant is so minute sometimes mm -hmm. that that's why we check people very frequently and why after drugs like TPA are given, we check them very frequently because we're looking for the people watching to change for the better or for the worse and to intervene when that happens. Mm -hmm. So I noticed, I noticed this change in him and I'm going to be honest, I don't think, I think if I was the primary nurse and not a family member, I probably would not have picked up on it as quickly just sure. because it's like, you chalk it up to like, well, they had a long night and a long day, and now yeah. I'm poking the bear every hour, so maybe they're just tired. Yeah. Because you also don't want to take people for unwarranted testing, and, you know, there's a fine line between, like, do I really think there's a problem, and do I want to expose them to, um, you know, the radiation or the harm that goes into getting yeah. an, an unneeded CT and things like that, you know, so there, I, I really don't, I think that if it wasn't my family member, I don't know that I would have picked up on it as quickly, but it was, yeah, it was probably about yeah. five in the morning. I noticed that he was not as participatory as he had been before. So I'd mentioned that to the, the nurse that had him overnight. And I was like, you know what, you might just want to mention in shift change that I think he's not participating as well. And I'm, I'm not sure that it's related to being fatigued. I think, I think it may be a neuro change, just knowing how, what the type of stroke he had and that his exam had gotten so worse after uh, the thrombectomy, I thought that maybe it was a change. And then um, the day shift nurse came on and touched base with her about that. And she said, yeah, I'm going to bring that up to the doctors. And they ended up taking him for an MRI. So usually, and this, this could be different institution to institution, but where Nicole and I work, um, the standard is 24 hours after somebody gets TPA, they'll go and get repeat imaging of their head, usually an MRI. Um, at that point to see if they had any conversion of an ischemic stroke to a brain bleed because of the TPA. Um, and also just to see how, how that stroke may or may not have evolved since the therapy. That's right. So they, they decided, um, and he would have been due for that repeat image um, probably about 7 p.m. I believe he got his TPA around 7. So we were many hours off that morning yeah. from him going for scan. So about lunchtime, they decided to take him for this MRI, and they said, once we hit 24 hours, we'll just go for a CAT scan instead of doing an MRI, which is more detailed than a CT. So that is the, the preferred image if we can get it. So 17 hours after he got his TPA, he got his MRI. And I figured, you know, this will take at least an hour between the transport there and back and the actual image itself. So I decided to go home. Like I said, I lived about 10 minutes away. I decided to go home and take a nap. And I might have been home for, I don't know, half an hour. I actually, I was talking to a coworker on the phone and, and like processing what was going on with her at the time. 
and I got a, a call on my phone. It said mom was calling me. So I'm like, hey mom, what's up? And it wasn't, um, it wasn't my mom. It was the director of our neuro ICU saying, yeah, saying, hey Lauren, it's the director of our neuro ICU. Um, I'm looking at your dad's MRI and he has a midline shift and I think we need to take him for a hemicrany. So the, and for those that don't know that procedure, they remove a part of the skull and they do that because the brain swelling from the injury is increasing to the point where that person could suffer neurologic damage or death related to too much pressure being in their head from that swelling. So they'll pop part of the skull off and kind of let the brain bleed through that hole. Right. Just um, like, so like if, 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 your, if your father was older, like we had mentioned earlier, they may not have had to do this hemicranectomy. Um, right. And they may have done it more conservatively. So we, in, in neuroscience nursing, we use a lot of what's called hypertonic solutions mm -hmm. that can help reduce swelling. Hypertonic meaning like a super, super salt solution that can be given at different increments, increments meaning amount of salt that's been diluted into a certain mm -hmm. amount of fluid. And there's many different types of that. There's, there's like 1.8%, there's 3%, and then there's these things called quote-unquote bullets that we call them. They are 23.4% um, sodium chloride like hypertonic solution that you can give. And what that aims to do is that aims to pull this, the swelling back and help the brain heal. And what Lauren was describing in terms of swelling and, and, and that you want to prevent death, that brain, if it's not taken care of with surgery or with a, with a um, salt solutions, can swell into the hole that exists in the base of your brain and your skull and can cause death by, by compressing on that, on that spinal cord mm -hmm. and that brainstem. So those sorts of things are needed sometimes for patient care. Mm -hmm. And that, um, that swelling that compresses on the spinal cord, that's called herniation, yes. um, which, which will be, I'll probably use that term before we're done here. Okay. Um, so my, when I'm being told this on the phone, I'm like, holy crap, you know, he's so young and this is happening so fast. And, um, you know, I, and I think, I think um, Nicole probably might chuckle at me saying this. Um, and I, I would not normally say something like this under just about any circumstance, but if there was anybody I know in my life, a coworker, a family member, a friend, any person I've met, any actor I know, like, I don't know. If there's anybody who I would say, he's a fighter, it would be my dad. Um, he, there, I, there's a lot of people who would not be um, self-driven to problem solve in the sense of like, okay, I can barely use my arm, but how am I, what am I going to do about that? But if there was anybody who I thought was like rehabable and might, would participate and do what they could for themselves to get better, it would be him. So my, so they, and they called me because my mom wasn't sure whether to consent or not. And they, they wanted to hear what I might think, just given, given the circumstances of me doing this for a job. And I'm thinking he's so young and he, you know, if he was gonna be a fighter or whatever, it would, he would be the one that I, I would think could get through this. So I said, yes, like we have to try. Um, and I said, I'm heading right back over. Sped the whole way there, 
I'm surprised I didn't get pulled over. I feel like I was going 90 on like suburb roads. I don't know. Um, <laughs> actually, <laughs> I don't know if she'll listen to this episode, but um, Trish Hinkledyer, I was on the phone with her during my drive and I'm pretty sure she's the only reason I didn't get in an accident and end up um, a patient in the hospital myself. So shout out to you for helping me to like stay somewhat sane in, in those moments. But um, I got to the hospital um, went straight to his room. He had the site marked that they were going to do surgery on, and just about none of my family was in the room, which was kind of weird. And then um, the nurse who had him was like, "Hey, your family, your family's in the um, library. We're gonna have a family meeting." And I'm like, "Okay." And then my mom said that she just like couldn't, she could not sign the paperwork for consent. She could not like do that alone. She needed to have yeah. all of us here and and make sure, you know, everything. Um, and my brother was there, so the three of us, and I think, I think my dad's parents were um, in on the meeting, too. Okay. So, um, the, the doctor that called me pulled up the image that they got from the MRI of my dad's brain, and I think I just about fell out of my chair, because the stroke was so profound, um, and I, I thought about sharing the image with you, but then I realized, you know, no, nobody's going to be able to see this who's listening to it anyway, so, <laughs> and it probably wouldn't be helpful, but. Maybe, I, I was thinking of actually doing, like, a, like, a blog post after this, because we, we talk about stroke, and, like, a, you know, mm -hmm. I, we work in, well, I, I still work in the neuro unit, but you work in, in, neuro, in trauma, and sometimes do neurotrauma. Mm -hmm. It'd be, a, it would be a good, like, topic to do, like, later on. I thought that would be a cool thing. Yeah. Um, cause I do teach a lot with my students with brain imaging. Yeah. Number one, because it really just helps to know what the heck we're talking about when we say these things, because even us talking on this, on this podcast episode, some people are gonna be like, I don't even know what the heck you're talking no. about. It'll make so much more sense to look yeah. at it. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I will, I will simplify all of it by saying, um, an MRI, a stroke, an ischemic stroke looks very white compared to the other parts of the image. And the entire left side of his brain, except for his frontal lobe, literally like one half over and just like that little, wow. everything was white. And there was like a, a small spot of blood. And um, we talked about the concept of herniation. Mm -hmm. So, when your brain when your brain is swelling and the swelling is going to be kind of more focused on the side of the, where the um, where the injury happens. So for him, it was mostly on the left. Yeah. So all of all of the gyri of the brain, all those little noodles on that and all the ridges, that. ridges that you see. Yeah. Um, those were very smooth. That. Those were very smooth on that side, and his ventricles, the structures in your brain that hold your spinal fluid, um, they were compressed on the left side. And, and we, for, for context, really wrinkly brain, when we see these images, not white, we want to see like nice gray variations. Mm -hmm. And we want to see, um, for lack of better description, really, really nice um, and open ventricles, but not, but not too open where, you know, you have mm -hmm. hydrocephalus, that's what that's called, but just nice patent ventricles, for lack of a, of a much better description, that pictures would do better justice to, but we don't have them. Mm -hmm. So uh, keep an eye out for Nicole's blog one of these days, and yeah, and maybe maybe 
this is where that blog post with this episode and things will all come together. <laughs> that would be so cool, Lauren, to, to do that and um, to have like what a normal MRI, I could, I'm sure I could find on Google Images too, of what that normal brain looks like and also describing what, what the vessels are and like all that stuff and then kind of go into that because this has been such a mm-hmm. great educational moment. So anyway, go ahead. Sorry. No, you're good. Um, so I see this and all, it, a lot of things were running through my head in that moment, but the, the main things were, um, you know, this was only 17 hours after he had a stroke. And um, so for more context, we are looking for peak swelling, like the worst of the worst of the swelling to happen between days like two and five. Yeah. And this is like not even a day. And, it, and he's, they already how quickly that happened. Like that's yeah. so fast. That is profound. So with, especially with a tiki 2 b which you get most of it open, mm-hmm. and then you have this 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 damage, and then the peak swelling happens. That's that's really really mm-hmm. really impressive. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, people people can overcome a stroke, right? Mm-hmm. There are lots of people who learn to talk again. Um, Maybe they once needed a feeding tube because they weren't swallowing after um, their stroke or their brain injury, and then they start talking, and eventually they can have some softer foods again. But usually that requires at least your brain to have some detour it can take in those neurons to kind of find a way around that problem. And your dad's young, and also he's a fighter. He would, he would work through this and somehow un- unapologetically would fight through this right yeah but when i saw that image i thought oh heck no he would not want to live this way Mm. Um, and my dad he was he was not afraid to talk about um death and things like that and from young he was very very adamant about if if it was a matter of him losing his independence Usually, usually the conversation being related to like more of a dementia picture, you know, like if he was going to not be able to feed himself and um, get himself washed up and things like that, that to him, that, that, um, that hit to that quality of life would not, would not be something that he would want. And he always told us that if it, if it came down to those types of things, he, that he would not want to have his life drawn out in a nursing home. Yeah. Um, And he... Yeah, and he was a master electrician. Wow. He um, loved to kayak. He loved to fish. He had the craziest sense of humor. He, like, all of these things that he, that would not be his life ever again with a stroke that significant. If it was, like, you know, a little, a little something, you know, you see an infarct on the scan, and it's, like, you know, we got to work with it. That would be one thing, but this was, like, his whole half of his head. Yeah. And that's so important that you knew what his wishes would be and, and who yeah. and who this person was behind your father. That mm-hmm. knowing that is 95% of the battle for families that yeah. don't know what they're walking into when they, when they have such a difficult decision to make. You know, do yeah. we want to do this? Do we don't want to do this? You know, there, and there's also so much, so much unknown yeah. At, in, in some types of patients. And sometimes, you know, at least you have this particular image that, and, and the knowledge base, you're like, this would not be my father mm-hmm. if we would do this procedure. 
you know, and who knows what life would be like down the long run, right? And, right. you know, like, would, would you, as, as a daughter, want to visit your father in a long-term, long-term care facility? You know, that's another important aspect mm-hmm. that your family had to make that decision on. And, you know, that's such a hard, hard thing to really come to grips, grips with. But, it, but, you know, it's that, it's that statement, like, like, I'm proud of you for, for standing up for what he wanted, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think so many others are as well. Mm-hmm. That, that was, that was what, you know, like, that was his life. That's what he wanted. Yeah. So. Yeah. So, and thank you for that. Um, so I, I kind of, they were, the conversation was directed toward kind of from the sense of like, we need, we need to do this cranny, um, to save his life. And, um, I was the only one out, out of the people in that family meeting other, other than of course the medical team. Um, but I was the only one that really kind of understood what, what, what that, that was meant. going to entail him yeah. going and getting that procedure and the fact that he probably would come back intubated and heck, you know, with how fast that he swelled, Nicole, I, I would venture to wonder if he would have needed to have his pop top top popped on the other side of his head yeah. too, with and, just how soon you know, in the window that happened. Right. And quite honestly, what also worried would worry me is even if we even if they did do that surgery and that the surgery was successful and they needed to do the other side of of it you know how much of that brain is going to react to treatment right how much of that brain is really going to want to heal itself and one of my more important topics that i always discuss with, with my particular patients when you have a stroke of any kind of type or severity you're automatically risk for having more strokes mm-hmm. oh yeah and so the long term of this is yes we have this happen to us right now mm-hmm. but it might be a ticking time bomb until something yeah. more happens on the other side in addition to you know it's 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 catch-22 sometimes yeah absolutely so uh i kind of i kind of interjected at that point and i said um well <laughs> not funny, not funny. Um, Funny is not the right word, but an interesting thing. I remember when I left my house, when he was going down for his MRI, um, one of our coworkers, uh, Kim Haas, she was like, how you doing, Lauren? And I was like, oh, you know, um, my dad's going for an MRI. That'll be on 3% by this afternoon. So in this family meeting, uh, that that's that hypertonic saline that we talked about that can be a drip. Um, when I came back and we had this family meeting and all, all of this is happening, they're kind of presenting the options to us. I said, um, I think, I think, uh, and I kind of went into, I talked a little bit about uh, what his goals um, of a, a quality of life would be and how none of this really seems to be fitting that picture. And I, I kind of said, you know, I, I think knowing my dad, I think he would rather be a DNR at this point, a DNI that do not intubate. And um, I think we should just medically manage with 3% and see, you know, if, if he gets worse, he gets worse. And if, if he doesn't, then we, we got to do what we can. But I don't think that he would have chosen to, um, for lack of better wording, uh, like ensure his survival with this, just based off of what a quality of life meant to him. Yeah. So I think, I think um, everybody, my family and everybody in the room, I think they're a little surprised that that's what I had to say. Um, but that's that's kind of how we proceeded. So that was 
that was kind of the end of day one. Um, the next day, you know, in, in the workup, the stroke workup starts. So we're trying to figure out what, what is going on? Why did he have this stroke? Um, and we talked a little bit in the beginning of this episode about the uh, modifiable risk factors being your diet, your lifestyle, and uh, whether you Those smoke. The most important things that you can fix mm -hmm. as a human that we, we try to teach everybody. And yep. most of the time, people don't want to listen to them. I, I mean, I, I would hope that they do. But, you know, I, I sometimes think that, like, some people just don't want to listen to them, maybe, because they just enjoy whatever they're doing and they think that there's no enjoyment anymore after they give up their their lifestyle or but, their mindset is like something's got to kill you so hey, something's got to kill you, you don't know? want yeah. but the thing is like so similarly with motorcycle crashes and people not wearing helmets and it's like well if i die i die but if you were to actually step inside of a unit at treated post post mm -hmm. accidents you don't necessarily die and yeah. it happens yeah. right away and it's a very, you know, difficult thing to, to, to discuss with people, mm -hmm. but, you know, these are really important topics that, that not a lot of people really get to talk about in terms mm -hmm. of things out, like being outside of the hospital mm -hmm. that people need, need to hear about because it's so important to fix your, your lifestyle. It's so important to try to do better. No one's saying you got to be perfect, right? No one's mm -hmm. saying that you need to go from a, a red meat eating diet, smoking, you know, um, and you drink a beer the dinner to being the opposite, which may be a vegan and you're, you know, you're running marathons. Yeah, running marathons <laughs> and I don't know, like doing whatever and just like being a hippie, I guess. I don't know. Maybe there's hippies that also do the opposite. But in any case, it, it takes a one step at a time motto to mm -hmm. really produce results. And that goes with anything, I think. But, but when I teach my patients and certainly use it as well. It's, it's a one step at a time thing to fix. So if you want to quit smoking, it's super hard to quit smoking cold turkey, right? Mm -hmm. But if you do it in steps and if you have support to do it, that's, that's even better. I mean, it might, it might be, you know, not going, not going to a bar with, with a smoky atmosphere. That might be smoking to people. That's most people, most people don't think about. Um, it might be not having that additional, brunch on Sunday that, you know, might have like 14 drinks in it, like shared between, between the parties. There's so many things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so in, in talking about risk factors, you have your, your non-modifiable risk factors. So the things that physiologically you can't change, including your gender, um, your heart rhythm, which you might be able to control with drugs or be able to take take medications that can decrease some of the risks that come with that. Um, but one that is kind of in the middle of the road is uh, whether or not you have diabetes. Mm. Nicole, what do you think my dad's A1C was? Um, with how fast the stroke happened? Like 12. 10.5. That's close. Give the guy some yeah. credit. Dang. <laughs> yeah, 10.5. So wow. for those for those that aren't familiar with an A1C, that's a basically an average of your blood sugar over uh, three months. And with an A1C that high, that is basically like your blood sugar level reading in the 300s at any given time, all the time. That's, the that's very, very, very significant for those that are listening. That's very, yeah. very high. We don't want that. We want that maybe between like four and five, give or take a few 
like, like decimal point percentages. Mm -hmm. um, A1C for it to be 10 is really high, really dangerous. So that's, that's literally not like something might happen to you. It's something will happen to you at yeah. that point. Yeah. yeah. My, my favorite way of, of teaching people about their diabetes and, and about how to about how to how to take it so seriously is that diabetes acts on your blood vessels and makes them into dry rotted rubber bands and so you lose the elasticity and you often create these problems that even if you had um high blood pressure so your vessels in your body work by like pumping pumping blood little little guys pumping blood even your tiny vessels do, do it they pump these things and then when they become this dry roddedness and you have even an, an increase of, of blood pressure by like five points or 10 points, you just burst open, right? Mm -hmm. And diabetes can also make you have strokes, like ischemic strokes really easily too. So your body, this becomes this ticking time bomb with every percentage increase of A1C, for lack of a better description and, and current mm -hmm. research that I probably have somewhere. But, um, but you're right, like A1C is sometimes really easy for people to fix it's like oh, i'll just do this this and this sometimes mm -hmm. it's really hard and if you get beyond a certain level it can be even more difficult to try to reverse it mm -hmm. so we found out he was diabetic um, through the course of this workup everything else that we would generally look for did it was good um the interventionalist that did the thrombectomy said that he didn't have a lot of plaques in his vasculature which is good so we knew we knew from his lab work and, and that observation that he probably wasn't related to having hyperlipidemia. Wow. Heart rhythm, he was in a sinus rhythm to sinus arrhythmia from whatever I was glued to the monitor for that whole course of his hospitalization. So it's unlikely that he had a fib. Um, he could have flipped in and out of that in his life, but really they think what it came down to was his A1C being that high and, and his modifiable risk factors. Yeah. So. Um, and I know you probably have put this, like, all these pieces together for yourself, but um, for our listeners, uh, basically what this means for him is that he got the TPA, he got the thrombectomy, which was great for him, and he had a really good grade in the thrombectomy. However, on the microvascular level, in the disease process of diabetes, his his brain tissue was kind of like rejecting the blood flow that was returned to it after they did that procedure. So even though he had some restoration in that part of his brain in the blood flow, on the microvascular level, it wasn't, it wasn't going to take like it used to after that injury and not getting that blood for that time because the uh, vessels are, are not as resilient as they would be in somebody right. who didn't have diabetes that advanced. Right. And even so, smoking yeah. with diabetes produces clots really easily too. So if you have your microvascular system, which is the tiny vessels, and you're predisposed to forming clots by just smoking alone, like let's go without the A1C, right? And you go with just the smoking alone, you can have strokes really easily. Mm -hmm. Mixed in with the A1C of it being super high, now you can you can pretty much clot everywhere and not just not just your brain but also strokes can happen in the gut um strokes can happen in the heart also it's heart attacks um so those things really really you know were super risky for for your father and i'm, and I'm sure for every patient too that has that so yeah so that that's what we think 
from from the workup that we got his his echocardiogram he had a good ejection fraction the measure of how efficient the heart's pumping he had a good ef um he didn't have a patent foramen ovale which is like a hole in the heart that sometimes blood can be shunted the wrong way and that can kind of turn turn blood and get a little clotty in your heart which can cause a stroke he didn't have that and sometimes people are born with those for people that don't yeah. know how, how they exist students might might know that but we might have people that are not nurses that listen to this that you're usually born with a with a little hole in the heart and you don't know it until you have stroke or something happens mm -hmm. yeah so that's that's pretty much what his workup showed um and so yeah with the, the course of how everything happened so that was like kind of kind of the end of that first full day in the hospital and then the next day he wasn't wasn't a whole terribly lot better or worse I don't think I think his exam pretty much stayed the same and they ended up getting a repeat CT um, I think in the middle of like the the early early morning one of those days just to compare and, and see how the swelling was doing which wasn't super changed from from that from that MRI it there was a little bit of increase in everything um, and then it was um, the next day um, they they had kind of presented the the option of going for a crany again mm. um, and they said let's get one more CT and kind of see what things look like and I don't know my brother and I kind of and my mom had gone home she she went home to rest and take a shower and it was just my brother and I there and we kind of talked about it and we had this moment of like okay if this CT isn't any worse and you know it's either you know it like if the swelling's not going to I can't talk if the swelling's not going to get any worse it's it wouldn't change the course of anything if he got the CT really anyway if you know right you know if he if he wasn't going to get to the point of herniation then he wasn't going to so it was kind of like you know we might as well do what we can I guess and then that CT that we got was very horrible. He developed hydrocephalus that we touched on a little bit mm. ago. Um, and at that point it was like, yeah, no, this is not at all what he would want. He would have been um, stuck in a nursing home, living among four walls for the rest of his life. He wasn't really understanding what we were saying. Um, he wasn't able to communicate for himself. He wasn't able to eat. Mm. It, you know, that's not, that's not a, a way for somebody who is so in about their independence to live, you know? Right. Absolutely. You know, I mean, I kind of joke, you probably could, could put my strokey self in front of a TV and put on some reality TV and just have it in my field of view. And I'd probably be all right. You had your, your eyeballs moving and we had your favorite video game right now, yeah. <laughs> which is animal crossing. I think <laughs> you were yeah. like, I can move my, my characters with my eyeballs. You, you'd be like, that's cool. I if love I that. Had, if I had my one hand to control the remote, you know, it, it probably would work out for yeah. at least a little while <laughs> until, until I had my other stroke or, or yeah, got or the pneumonia or whatever it might be, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I joke, but you know, so but my point in saying that is, you you really have to know your loved ones and you need to have these hard conversations so that you know what somebody would be willing to go through and yeah, yeah. what so. what matters in a quality of life to people. So at that point we said no we're going to make them comfort care and um and then yeah so that I would say from from him having his stroke 
until he passed away. Um, he probably, it probably was about three and a half going on four days. And like I mentioned before, this, this big increase in brain swelling, we kind of anticipate in days two to five. So that, that is a really quick downhill spiral for somebody. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, I, I could probably talk for a whole other hour about like how crazy it was to understand the active death process and to see that kind of play out in front of your eyes and just how very strange it was for usually, you know, our, our patients that we withdraw on and we, we make them comfort care. Usually they have multi-organ failure mm -hmm. and they are elderly most of the time. And it's, it kind of happens a little quicker because their organs aren't in good shape, but really the, the organ that was in really bad shape for my dad was his brain. So there was a lot of compensation in his cardiac and his pulmonary systems to compensate for that increased pressure in his head. And um, that, was, that was very crazy to see because usually it's, it doesn't take very long. It, it, it took, oh, I don't know literally all night for for him to kind of for that whole process to kind of um complete I guess you could say like yeah. to herniation yeah um and really I think I kind of I kind of got to the point he was um he had been like agonally breathing and um he was in SVT for many hours um and we were, you know, we were giving him medications to help make him comfortable, but it, you know, he really, um, as far as I can tell, was like completely comatose and was not, I don't think he was alert and aware of anything at that point. Um, right. So how much, how much was it for comfort? I don't know. Um, as far as like helping the symptoms, it's just, that's just like at that point, autonomically what, what your brain's doing and you're breathing like that, not because you're in pain or you're uncomfortable, but just because that's how a person breathes when their brain is under that much pressure or yeah. their heart races that fast because their brain is under that much pressure. So yeah. um, I, go ahead. Sorry. I was just gonna say the, the way that um, I teach my students is to understand what, why, why things like swelling matter so much and why things like strokes in certain locations matter so much because of herniation is because our our primary brain, you know, like our brainstem, it, when that brain is pressing on that and, and, and herniating, that's what happens, it can make the breathing pattern tricky because your breathing, your heart rate are right there in that in that brainstem. And so when it presses on it, it's gonna make those things like heady wampus. So so that's why you can see people go into a to a really slow heart rhythm or bradycardia and a different breathing pattern too, because something's happening within that brainstem. And similarly, if you were to have a brainstem stroke, um, you can see those changes as well, which is, which is, which is pretty scary, you know, for, for a non-nurse and, and scary when you want to treat that patient. You're like, oh crap, I got to like fix this right now. I got to tell somebody about this, you know? Um, and those things really, really are kind of like, if, if you're not used to seeing those things, and, and knowing and knowing how to react, those can be really, really like, oh crap, what now? You know, like really mm -hmm. shocking and, and frightening and, and things like that, which is why um, I kind of enjoy neuroscience because I kind of enjoy like, if something's gonna happen to you, I, I, I wanna know how to treat it and, and like what to assess for. 
So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so super important for, um, for any of the students that might listen to this. If you wanna go into neuro, I so recommend you get familiar with your neuroanatomy and what, what parts of the brain are responsible for what, and you will pretty much be able to anticipate yeah. What what your neuro exam is going to be like. But again, that's probably a whole other topic for a whole other episode. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but yeah, so he just kind of watching that process um was it was very um challenging as somebody who knows exactly what what's, what's the next physiologic change gonna be. And I remember um and I we don't need to go too far into this, but um I remember like touching his arm and it was so hot. And I was like, oh no, like he's not thermoregulating, but then it's like, but he's comfort care. Like, why do I care? You know? And I, yeah, it's like, it's your, it's your dad, you know? Yeah. Oh yeah. You're feeling his arm and you're like, that's not how his arm feels like. It was yeah. like, that is hot. Like I took my hand away, like as if I touched a hot stove. I was like, Ooh, that like I had the response. And so, um, it would have been inappropriate, but like I, it would, I wouldn't put it past me to have taken his temperature just to see what it was because I was interested. <laughs> but, um, but yes, and I, we had kept the monitor on because I wanted to be able to see what his oxygen levels were. Yeah. He was anywhere from eight to 89% with the agonal breathing. And, um, and then he, he got really hot. Like I said, he, I don't know what his fever was, but it, it was absolutely insane. I don't think I've ever felt skin that hot. Mm. Um, and then I look down at the Foley and I see he put out like 600 in the past half hour because, you know, the nurse family member, I'm like, I can't do anything but empty this Foley. That's about the only help I can be. So I had been doing that for, um, the nurse that had him. Um, <laughs> but I looked down, I was like, wow, that's a lot of urine for me having done this a couple minutes ago. So I knew he was in diabetes insipidus and, um, it, it just kind of stayed that way for a really long time and I, I ended up uh, repositioning him and making his bed a little bit flatter um, because I knew that that was suffering for him to one degree. It was suffering for my family to see him that way. And it probably, it couldn't have been more than a minute past that after hours of um, him, him not being alert anymore and just being straight up like comatose and breathing in this way that's very scary for people that don't watch people die a lot to hear and to see him like that and yeah so that was that was a very um tough tough moment I would say I would say so too Decision to to kind of like lay his head a little flat and and let let that respiratory drive and his brain kind of do its thing but yeah was it was it helpful to have him still on the monitor? That's a question a lot of, a lot of us. Yeah, I get asked that a lot. Ourselves. So I think, I think it kind of depends on your personality. I am definitely, and my family through this, they're like, you're so scientific about this. You're, you're so like logical about this. So for me, I needed to see those numbers. Okay. I wanted to know, and for, I'd say, um, and for those that don't work where we work, maybe you have different equipment or you, you don't work in a hospital setting. Um, the heart monitors that we have have a setting that the screen can be blank in the room, but you can go outside the room where we have our, our big monitors that show the whole unit's heart rhythms, and you can see what's going on out there, and you can right. see where their oxygen levels are out there. So, right. so I we kept can, that. For, for families with these monitors, basically. Yeah. Yeah. 
so I kept I kept that privacy mode on so that my family wasn't fixating on that because I thought that they they would fixate on that and if mm -hmm. like his heart rate went from 105 to 108 they would think that was a, a big bad thing so yeah. and once once his oxygen levels got to the point where I knew that this would be imminent in the near future that was when I turned it on in the room because I, I kind of in my own like coping mechanism would go out into the halls and socialize with whoever was sitting at the desk charting and try and talk about like um whatever I could to, yeah, to kind of feel. yeah so I wasn't I, I was not in there like at his side every second of this whole process because I just like emotionally like I could not so yeah. Um, I was I was out there and when when I kind of realized like okay you know probably I would say in the next two two or so hours you know things are going to be looking different then I, I went in and put the monitor on so that I could look at it um, but I think I had one other family member there with me my dad's sister who is a nurse practitioner so she understands what you know different heart rhythms are and um, what what those numbers meant and I don't I really don't know how much mind she paid to that but I pretty much told my family, like, don't even worry about the numbers. I set all the settings so that, like, literally the only thing it could alarm out for is, like, lethal rhythms, which which they have to alarm out for that. Right. Um, so, to me, it was helpful. To other people, I don't know. That might be, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's, I, I definitely turn the monitor off in the room for family members that aren't medical at all. Cause like I said, they'll just fixate and focus on it and they're not, um, they're not using it as a tool and they're, right. it's taking, it's taking their time away emotionally to, to process right. that well, time with well, their loved ones. Knowledge can, can be a bad thing. Yeah. So that, that is something that I did for myself. Um, but yeah, like I said, it may or may not be helpful for others. And I think if it, if it's causing someone anxiety, to be looking at that and seeing that go down, it needs to be shut off. If it if it's helpful to them and that's helping them process, and um, you know, if you're a nurse and it, it's helpful to you to see that rhythm, um, then then that's what you need. And I remember when before before I laid his head down, um, I did put the I shut the monitor on privacy because I knew what it was going to do. Right. Soon after, so I figured they don't need to hear that sound because that, um, if you're not used to hearing that sound of that monitor, like red alarming, that can be very um, scary upsetting and scary. Yeah. yeah. So I figured I'm just going to shut this off and they don't need to hear that. And then um, when, when he did go pulseless, um, I didn't turn it back on and I, and I, I waited some time and I didn't feel anything. And I said like, yeah, you know, I, I think, you know, I think he's gone now. And then everybody, you know, of course, everybody was really upset. And then, like, those last couple gasps came out. Everybody screamed, what was that? And I was like, that happens sometimes. It, that's a part of the process. And then at that point, I was like, well, I guess I better turn this thing back on and see what's going on. Right. Um, at that point, he was um, idioventricular in, like, the teens. And then, and then just, like, blocked out until he was asystolic. And then I turned it back off. Um, but... Yeah, it it was a very odd experience to, I don't know, be in a position where like not only am I a family member, but like the nurses don't aren't really caring if I'm touching the equipment, and 
doing stuff because I'm their coworker, or maybe they did care and didn't tell me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know either, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it was a very odd experience. Um, yeah. A very surreal experience, I'm sure, too. Oh, yeah. Because, because we, you know, so, sometimes, and I, and I discuss this with my students a lot, when you have to separate your work from going home and not carrying, carrying the emotions with you and kind of like letting that go, it kind of can sometimes be a turnkey process into um, getting a new patient in and mm -hmm. their, their diagnosis isn't, isn't promising and the family's made a decision to withdraw care and they pass away and then you, you, you clear the room out and then you get another patient and in. Another and another one in, yep. And, and that can be so overwhelming if you're not careful with how you behave to those things, number one. And number two, leaving things at work and mm -hmm. in a respectful way, not caring. Yes. In terms of in terms of what happens, because you can invest all you want into your nursing care and into being a provider to someone and all this stuff. But if that kind of if that kind of like goes over the ledge, you're gonna crash mm -hmm. like smack down on the ground. And so that's not gonna be mm -hmm. beneficial because you're not gonna be able to take care of somebody else tomorrow. And yep. so I often try try to teach people to number one, take care of yourself first, take mm -hmm. care of your coworker second, and then take care of your patients the third. Because your patients matter, but if you're not there to be with your patients and if you're not helping your coworker be there with their patients, you can't take care of patients. Yep. Absolutely. And so, yeah. And so I think that's that's such an important aspect for people to learn from this as well is is death isn't easy. Um, having somebody, you know, be there that your family member goes through something on your unit, it's just a crazy experience and not one that I think is easily taken. And I'm surprised that it was a year before you you needed to make a change and seek another type of role. Um, I'm going to say that without a doubt, I never would have been able to step foot on that unit again if it wasn't for the amazing coworkers that work there. And I just, I don't have enough good and positive things to say about the people that work on that unit um, in the, the care that they give to their patients and also how we do take care of each other. Um, and I could, I could like give a, a whole huge shout out to names, but that, that would also be its own episode <laughs> to go through every person. This would be like an eight hour discussion of, of Oh my God. Yeah, names. it easily could. Um, but I will just say, um, Jen DeLago, Jen Chelko, Kaylee Hudak, and Haley Hartman. Um, my family is so grateful for the care that you gave. And Lauren Shuttlesworth. I'm so sorry, Lauren. Um, but <laughs> they they were so impressed with you guys. And my dad did get agitated and frustrated because of his deficits at times. I know at nighttime, he definitely for, I think, the shift that Kaylee had with him, he was he was a little hot to handle, um, and they just were very amazed with your guys' patience and your tact in, in this situation, and they still talk about you guys, and they remember your names, and, wow. you know, so just, 
I just want you guys to know that I want you to feel really good for the care that you gave my dad and to my family, especially my dad's parents. They, they'll never forget you guys. Um, so I, I think even though this was a really sad thing, it's something like that none of us could have changed. Um, and if, if we would have done anything different, it probably would have been worse off for him. Um, I am a firm believer that there, there are things that happen in this world that are worse than death. And I think the alternative for him would have in his perception been worse than death. Um, yeah. so just, I want you to, you guys, if, if ever you're feeling down or you feel like, um, in your career, and this goes for any, any nurses out there or soon to be nurses, if you ever having a bad day, think about the difference that you made for one person and hold on to that. Cause mm. especially in a, in a specialty like neuro, you, you are going to have a lot of, um, you know, universe, universe one, Lauren zero kind of moments with, with some of these patients. And if you can just remember that time you made that person feel human again, or that you were a great support to a family. I know in, in Shelby's episodes a, a few weeks ago, she talked a lot about, um, you know, her experiences in dealing with comfort care patients and their families, you know, that, that's yeah. the stuff you've got to hold on to to carry you yeah. through the, the setbacks and the losses. That's so, so true. So important for people, for people to learn as well. Yeah. And, and really it's, you know, for, for your aspect, it's okay to step away and mm -hmm. take that time to reflect and, you know, do something better for yourself in terms of emotional health and mental yeah. health. You know, I think that, that not a lot of people know. Some, sometimes I feel some people can get stuck into their rhythm of what they're used to. Yes. And it might not be the healthiest thing for them. And it might not be emotionally um, ex acceptable to themselves mm -hmm. to be able to, get to do that, right? Because that's a very emotional practice, nursing. And especially critical care where people are very, very sick. Yeah. So, yeah, this is, this is not for the faint of heart working in any ICU. And you're, you're going to see, it doesn't matter if you work neuro. Like, you know, I think most people that um, work in critical care, they think of neuro as like, oh, like, you know, a lot of the times those patients, you're not seeing the like happy, amazing miracle success stories um, right. and just, just the nature of the disease processes that we deal with. But you will find no matter what part of nursing you work in, there are going to be um, emotionally charged and um, ethical situations that um, yeah. it, it might not be that person that like, oh, you like really struggle with um, this decision that was made for the patient or that, you know, it, it might not be a matter of that. It could, there are other aspects um, that can, that can be tough no matter where you work and just, I think, having good um ways to cope with that and for me um I thought that and I'm and I most of my coworkers know this too uh I, I'm not one for change I really don't like change um I've driven the same crusty car that is 20 years old and everybody used to make fun of my jeep and be like when are you upgrading that car like you know so and, and <laughs> I'm not I did get a new car yesterday but I still have the jeep beautiful <laughs> But, um, you know, so for me, I'm not, I don't really embrace change and I always loved neuro. So for me, that was a really hard decision and I adore my coworkers in the neuro unit. So for me, I felt like that would be like another layer of grief to go through when I already was in this really bad spot. 
So yeah. I think that was a big factor in me not leaving very soon. But then it did get to the point where it was like, okay, you know what? It wouldn't be bad for me professionally to get more well-rounded and try something else just for the, the sake of knowledge and learning. And also yeah. I probably need to distance myself from, from this thing that um, whether I am conscious of it or not is impacting my mental health. And I think a lot of it I didn't even realize was affecting me. Yeah, I, I think you hit the nail right on the head and I was thinking about this the whole episode because you had first mentioned it when you were, when you were with like in your um, father's room and then you mentioned it a little bit ago in terms of your own personal bias and addressing that and being very cognizant of it and how it, it, it kind of can throw you into one particular realm. My dog has woken up. Um, <laughs> but it's really important to know that because you're going to meet patients that have such a, a unique viewpoint on what they want their care to be like. Mm -hmm. And you have to remove yourself from what you think is right. Yes. And really hone in on what, what that patient at that time would want and what the family would want as well in conjunction with the patient's rights. And that is, that I think, perhaps is the overall theme of this, of this episode. Um, but really acknowledging that and saying change is, is okay, you know, and, mm -hmm. and change, you know, for me just recently was helping out in the COVID units. And that was that's such a, <laughs> I mean, that's been such a refreshing for me, like to kind of just learn something new and, and not have to risk leaving my unit to do so and appreciate meeting new people and, and donning and doffing every 15 no, I'm kidding. It's not, not really that much. <laughs> but really, like, taking the time to, to learn and appreciate, like, so many skills, I think, is sometimes warranted to make sure that your career isn't going to just be thrown, like, in a downward spiral and land into this burnout phase mm -hmm. quicker than what you want it to do. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah. And I, I was, I can tell toward the end there, I was getting pretty burnt out. Um, and I don't, I don't even know really what I can, I, how I can describe it. Like definitely. Um, so I guess, I guess I could say that after, after my dad died, I thought that maybe that was something I could bring to the table um, mm -hmm. with these, these different families that are so, um, so far into the, um, maybe different different stages of I don't want to say like grief but like um, you know first you know with how can I say what I want to say with these stroke patients a lot of times there's not tons of like events leading up to it that people really even know that they're in that poor of health right whereas like you know sometimes people who are going to have heart attacks might have some chest pains every now and then and they know like something's not right maybe they like kind of put it off but a lot of times with our stroke patients it's just one day boom it happens and it's right. not and I think for that um it's it's a it's a more complicated um process of acceptance that this is this is the state that their loved ones are at with these families that we see they're maybe in a little bit of denial or shock or um in fear and um, those kind of stressful emotions that really impairs people's um, judgment and their yes. ability to be educated. So you have these people that are just trying to process the fact that like 
their loved one is on life support and intubated with a bad brain bleed and they might never wake up again and, and now you're problems wrong with them and we never knew that yeah and then and then the you have a whole team of people saying okay you need to make a decision you need to give consent for this or that and they're just like oh my god i don't know what to do and these people might have an eighth grade education they probably aren't a neuro icu nurse that already knows kind of like what steps are to come and that that is really something i thought like i might be able to help these people navigate this and i and i can be able to say that um, I can kind of understand what they're experiencing and it's not some like empty thing that you say to people to make them feel better. Right. Um, but I was f actually finding that, um, you know, like we talked about, you might not always agree with the decisions that are made for people. Um, I was finding myself getting quite frustrated. Mm -hmm. um, and before, before this happened to my dad, I used to say to my friends at work, like, you know, I don't know what I would do if, if I was a decision maker for somebody in the hospital, I might, I might have my, my cleared nurse head, or I might just be terrified and be like, yeah, do everything, even though like the logical part of you knows that that, that might not be for the better. Um, and so I said, I don't, I don't know what I would do. And then I was faced with it. And now I, I can say that I, I do know what I would do. And I would stick to my guns and what I know. And yeah, my knowledge to to make a decision that I think that my loved one um, would be at peace with. Yeah. And um, it's, you know, it you you can't really it. First off, it's distasteful and it's rude to say to someone like, well, I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have, you know, tricked right. and picked right. that person. That, right. That's not you're not, in, you're not in their shoes and, and don't right. discuss things like you are in their shoes. Right. And, you know, if if I even if I was a nurse, but I wasn't a neuro nurse, maybe if I was a cardiac nurse, I would have said, yeah, do the crany. We got to try because I right. don't know what the aftermath of that looks like. Right. And so it, I, I will, toward the end there, I was finding that I was just like too, too biased at that point in time. And I really needed to take a step back and, and deal with my grief. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe someday I can come back to neuro. Um, yeah, you never know. I do love it, but, oh, um, for you, you know. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I, I think they'd take me back if I, if I really wanted to come back. I don't think there'd be much of a discussion. No. <laughs> once, once you can do charge, you're kind of, you're kind of a golden boy around yeah. that place. <laughs> oh, I love it. But um, you know, so with all that said, it, it was not an easy decision, and it, it was so hard for me to leave a job that I loved, a patient population that I loved, and coworkers and doctors and leadership that I loved. And just I would go to work and be very, you know, like you have hard days and you sure you yeah. Know, you you have crummy days as a nurse. And that that is you're never, I think, gonna find a job where every day is perfect in heaven because it, it's work and you work in the ICU and things don't always go as planned. But um I felt very fulfilled with my work. So it, it was really really a very hard and drawn out decision um me leaving but i did and um i was a little nervous at first similar similar to when i talked about when i left my very first nursing job and you know people would say like oh you can't hack it or like yeah like you'll you'll never like be able to hang there or whatever i i kind of i think some of that um a little bit of insecurity from from 
being in an environment that was like, you know, a little bit toxic and people just talk to each other that way. I think in the back of my head, I was like, well, you know, I did okay in neuro. What if I go to the surgical ICU and like, I'm, you know, I'm a pile of crud at my job and they, you know, think I'm terrible. And what if my knowledge base is too specialized? And I just like, you know, it's like starting from scratch. And that's, you know, I think, I think that like being that level of being very, um, comfortable in the sense of like you no longer as a nurse and for any nurse new nurses out there you will feel for a long time like you don't know what the heck you're doing and that's yeah. pretty normal but when you get to a point where you like kind of know what you're doing and I think, I think in every single one of like my talks with my students I'm like y'all gotta give it five years yeah in anything yeah. you do and like they're like no I don't like the first time I tell them this they're like no we're you know what you're talking about right and then I'm like, I talk to people, I'm like, well, five years is like, how long you're going to spend as a bedside nurse, how long you should spend as a bedside nurse before you decide, A, I know this stuff, B, this is what I want to do, C, maybe I want to change, you know, like a whole career, like change in terms of like, yeah. you know, not necessarily like outside of nursing, but maybe a, a nurse practitioner or nursing informatics or a CRNA or yeah. something like that, you know? Yeah, for sure. So it, it was really scary for me to think about going from, you know, I've spent my whole career in neuro to one level of acuity or another, and now I'm going to be doing transplants and bellies and wild, you know, like, you know, and traumas, you know, that was, and we got a little bit of trauma in neuro, but, you know, it's not multi-organ kind of stuff. And that was just like, you know, what, what if I am like, you know, at a GN level of understanding of this stuff and it, and like, they're not pleased with my performance and, you know, having right. some of those fears, but, um, I'm here to tell you that if you leave a job or you try something new, you, whatever knowledge you gain from that job or that experience, even, even if you, this is your first nursing job and you worked retail or, you were yeah. a waitress. There's probably something that you learned in your life that is going to be applicable or helpful in your success at your new job. And you just have to be open to learning. And um, they, one of my first days on my new unit, they said to me, oh, thank God we got a neuro person around here because when, when we have to set up a codman or put a drain in someone's brain, like we have somebody that's going to have more confidence with it than we do. And I've, you know, been at times the go-to person for some of this equipment that's a little more specialized to the neuro patients in my new role. And so I say that to say that nothing, even if let's say your first job you hate and you get six months into it and you're like, I just can't do this anymore. And you want to move on to something else. You probably, there's something, an experience that you had that's going to help you in that new role. So don't ever think that you don't bring anything to the table, stepping into something new and, um, Hopefully, it's not your the reason for changing isn't as drastic as the the reason that um, I decided to try something new. But um, this this field that we're in is so broad, and there is so, so much stuff that there to me there's no reason to stay in a job that is hurting your mental health. Mm -hmm. If you know, and you know, the, this job wasn't hurting my mental health because of the actual work. The actual, my coworkers were, I, I had some of the best times at dealing with my grief in the very beginning, being at work, being distracted, laughing with Trish Hinkle Dyer, you know, that, 
some of some of the the moments where I truly was smiling again was being with my awesome coworkers. So um, there can be a lot of reasons, but let's say you, you are your workplace is toxic and it's and it's not a place that you're thriving. You do not have to stay where it's hurting you. And I don't know. I just, I, I think it's true that you need to give a job a chance and you do, you know, try and stick it out a year if you can. You don't, you don't want to be hopping around so often that you're, you're not getting good experience in any one thing. But at the same time, there's no reason, no reason in this world with how broad nursing is. If you don't like the bedside, go be a school nurse or informatics or case management, there's so yeah. many different things. You you don't even have to be in direct patient care if that's not what you're into. Right. We need you in direct patient care, but if it's yeah. really not what, you, what your you know, passion is, then by all means, there's, there's so many mm -hmm. other practices. The worst thing would be for someone to leave the profession of nursing, I think, and say to themselves, like, I know I was never meant to, meant to do this, <laughs> meant to be someone that takes care of people, which is not it's not the case. You pass nursing school for a reason. You you pass your NCLEX. You know mm -hmm. you got to this point where you're meant to be someone within nursing. Sometimes you just gotta find your your niche and where and where your specialty is. And sometimes it just it may it might be changing every every five years or whatever it is. Some people yeah. like travel for the rest of their life as a nurse. But I know a couple people that that do that. I don't know. I would never be able to do that because I like having a home and and knowing like where I'm gonna be. Some people just love the aspect of like I don't know where my next adventure is gonna be, you know. Yeah. So there's 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 something for everybody. For sure. We had we had a, a traveler on our unit for for um, about a year. His name was John. He was so fun, <laughs> and he had been a, a CVICU nurse for like 20 years. He traveled and tried to pick like heart assignments as often as he could. Yeah. And I precepted him when he came to our hospital and he got an assignment on our unit. And I was like, well, if you like cardiac so much, why are you a neuro nurse? Because those are like water and oil. They're like yeah. opposites in the nursing field. And he was like, well, I never did it before. And I thought it would make me a man. So it's never too late to try something new, even if it's just for your own learning. And this goes back to what Nicole said um, a few minutes ago. If you aren't taking care of yourself, you can't be there for the patients. And I was, I was still doing my job the best I could, but I, um, mentally, I was, I really wasn't doing myself any favors by taking in an assignment in the room where my dad died. You know, that's yeah. You know, that's just something that I, I it wasn't on the forefront of my mind and. Um, to me, it was like, okay, I got to compartmentalize this for the next 12 hours and I need to get through my shift and I need to, to do what this, for this person who's still alive, what they need to do. And I can't be concerned with my dad who died right. for these 12 hours. And um, that, you know, sometimes that worked better than others, but then, you know, I would go home and, you know, struggle, struggle in my time off where you should be recharging from your shift. And that got better with time. And, you know, even before I uh, left the unit and, and did something new, um, that was getting a little bit better. But I think overall this, even though it wasn't necessarily the change that I embraced, it was, it was a really hard lesson in 
putting myself first before my unit and before my patients, but it's what needed to happen. And now I feel like, I, yeah, I could pick up there and have a great time and it would be cool. But, um, that I really wasn't, I wasn't, um, the best, the best nurse that I felt like I could be because of the, the biases and kind of everything I had going on. Yeah, I think it's an honest, honest opinion. Well, Lauren, I want to thank you so much for sharing such a really brave story and, a, and an amazing story and also educating people about stroke. I mean, that was like, you know, we got into it like, that was like a case study, right? It was, <laughs> that that was like case a case study. study. <laughs> I'm sure my students and future students will love it too. But, um, but anyway, thank you so much for, for being a part of this. We'll have to do this again, for sure, for so many other reasons um, in, in terms of what we've brought up during this podcast. Sorry, my dog is sneezing now. And we hope to see you again sometime later. Yep, thanks for having me.